0: So, we've heard the story plenty of times about we shepherds out in the field, keeping watch. Suddenly, um, carols kind of seem to be sung in the sky. There's angels telling them. We're so familiar with this story. We hear it in the carols, we hear it in shopping centres on the endless loop of music. And, uh, and it's sort of it's so familiar that it kind of could even be a bit boring. Perhaps there's something we haven't noticed in this story. We heard the reading there from Luke chapter 2. And it opens with these shepherds out in the field. And it's in, it begins, my word, it says, in that same region. And so it's useful to know what that same region is. Before I do that, I had thought about telling you this story before I launched in. I forgot to do it. But I'm going to launch into it. I'll tell the story now. When I was a minister of the large Bay Anglican church uh, many years ago, I um, had a lady in the congregation who was a really hard nut. She really was tough. But she, I think, her life was tough. But uh, she, uh, she hated weddings. And she really hated weddings. That, she was a married lady, by the way, but she really hated weddings. They had 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as the reading. Love is and it's going out the glories of love. She hated that. She said it's just so fake. Whoever lives up to that. And I, I think gee, I really felt for her. I was a young pastor, I had no idea uh, how how to help her. It was really tough. And um, my solution then was to try to argue her into the fact that love was really good. Try argue her into that fact that love was good. And all I did was make her crosser. <laughs> I want to come back to that story later on. But there are people in this world who have hard crusts. they kind of walked in and... Uh, into the life in a way that um, they become kind of cynical about anything. And uh, I think that that's why Christmas can bring all that out. Christmas is kind of like 1 Corinthians 13 of our year, isn't it? It's about wonderful things. And if you're a cynical person, that can be really hard. And so we kind of get cross about Christmas. and and a little bit dismissive of it. Yeah, it's right for kids. But, you know, they're going to have a hard realisation one day, aren't they? You know, that it's not all that it's cracked up to be. I don't want to be the Christmas Grinch. (laughs) So you've got shepherds out in a field in this region. The region that they're in is the area around Bethlehem, which is also known as the city of David. Actually, it had been a long time since Bethlehem had been called the city of David. There was a man called David who was born there, and he did become the king of Israel. But not long after he became the king of Israel, it was Jerusalem that became the name, the city. It came called the city of David, and Bethlehem sort of disappeared into the background. In a time of great social disruption and upheaval, a prophet had gone to Bethlehem to visit a man called Jesse, because God had told him to go, because God had rejected the first king of Israel, a man called Saul, God had rejected him, and he wanted this prophet called Samuel go to Jesse's house because he told Samuel, I've chosen a new king, Israel, from Jesse's children. And uh, so Jesse had eight sons. I wonder which one it was going to be. And that's what Samuel must have been thinking. And he, he turned up and there was a, a kind of a head of body and uh, everybody was called into the feast. And uh, all the sons, Jesse, uh, Samuel, one by one, looked at it. he looked at the third one, his name was Elia, but he thought he's a big, strong, strapping lad, looks quite bright, he'd be a great king. And the Lord said, no, not him. I don't look on the outward appearance, he said to Samuel. That's what human beings do. Human beings look on the outside, but God looks on the inside at the harm, and it's not him. And... So there were seven of the sons there, and Samuel looked at each one, and each time the Lord said, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him. And then Samuel said to to Jesse, look, have you got any more sons? And he said, yeah, there is one more. He's the youngest one. He's the runt of the pack, and he's out looking after the sheep in the field." Ding 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 ding. Does that ring any chimes? And, and so they, they sent out messages and they hauled him back in, and he came to came to the feast. And then the Lord says to Samuel before Samuel really had any chance to assess him, "This is him. This is the one that, to be anointed king." And uh, The reason was that David was a man after God's own heart. That really means that David was someone who sought God, who wanted to know God's ways, and wanted as much as he could to follow those ways. And so he was anointed to be king in place of of Saul, who was being deposed. So that's what Samuel did, he anointed him, he had a flask full of oil and he poured this oil on top of David's head and he anointed him to be the king. And when he did that, the Bible at that point tells him that the Holy Spirit rushed upon him. David, rushed upon him, it came a great deal of power upon him. But you know, it took a number of years before David actually became king. I want to tell you a little bit about kings in the Old Testament. There was a law that was given to Israel about kings even before they had a king. For a long time, Israel had no king other than God. God was their king. But in Deuteronomy, the Lord made provision for a king, knowing that Israel was finally wanted king. And he spells out in, the, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 20, he spells out the responsibilities. The king says. Sometimes you'll call for a king, I'll I'll give you a king, but the king must be, firstly, only the person that I choose. That was number one. Only the person that God chose. Secondly, he had to be an Israelite. They couldn't choose a king from another nation to rule them. And he had to really be a brother to the people that he ruled. He couldn't be separate from them. He had to be a brother to them. And then there were certain things that the king was not allowed to do. What do you reckon, what do you think a king should be able to do? Any thoughts? Anything. Pardon? Anything. Well, yeah, you kind of think that. A king should be able to do anything. If you've got power, why not use it? Quite interesting. These were the three things that he wasn't allowed to do. And then I'll tell you the one thing in the law that he was told that he had to do. Only one thing that what, is, what should a king what should a king have to do? Yeah, yeah, rule his country, and I guess that would involve two things. So likely it would mean protecting the country from enemies and making sure that things were right in the country, kind of establishing justice. We'll come to what the law says he has to do. But these are the three things he wasn't allowed to do. Firstly, he wasn't allowed to get lots of horses. He's uh, I mean, talking horses. Well, in the ancient world, horses were the tanks of the ancient world. Horses called chariots. Horses were warfare animals. And uh, so, really is to say that the king was not allowed to develop huge military strength. Israel was never allowed to become a superpower. Second thing, the king was not allowed to get many wives. What's that got to do with anything? Well, wives were a way, especially at a high level, you would marry the daughters of other kings. And it was a way of building alliances. So the king wasn't allowed to have an army, military force, and he wasn't allowed to have political clout and alliances. And the third thing he wasn't allowed to do was get excessive gold and silver. So he wasn't allowed to become economically independent either. What the king had to be all the time was dependent on God. He had to depend on God to protect the country and he had to depend on God to provide for the country. That kind of ties into what he has to do, doesn't it? Then, this is the one thing that he had to do this book of Deuteronomy that the law was in, the king had to get a scroll and handwrite out himself a copy of the book of Deuteronomy. Handwrite it all out. And he had to get it checked by the, the priest when it was done to make sure that he got it exactly right. If it wasn't right, has to do it again. kind of like school. <laughs> Old school kind of thing, isn't it? Writing out lines. But he had to write out the whole book of the law of God. So that tells you that the king could never it, he wasn't actually able to do whatever he wanted the king had to know what God wanted and to do that himself and to ensure that that's what happened in the land as well that's quite something isn't it the, the king had to be a brother to the people of Israel it was not a them. He was one of them. And he had to live by the same law that they were to live by. And he was to exemplify to Israel by not having power or alliance or wealth, great wealth. He was to exemplify to Israel a life of dependence upon the living God. That's what they to do. And if he did that, the law says, I'll establish your kingdom for a very long time. And your descendants, if they do, it, I'll continue to hold your kingdom. Well, Saul had first been chosen by God and had been a disappointment. And, and if there's such a disappointment, God actually had to take the kingdom away from him. And then David became the king. And after a time, when he finally became king, he was actually really good for a long time. He, he had Saul, who was the king, knowing that David was going to replace him, and Saul hating him and trying to kill him. And he had a number of occasions where he himself could have killed Saul, and he didn't. He honored him as king, even though he knew that he was going to replace him. It's really interesting, isn't it? That's a very humble position to be, isn't it? And uh, finally, Saul did die, and David became king, and he established his place in Jerusalem. And for the most part of the Old Testament, it's Jerusalem that's known as the city of David. But I think it's really important to know that Bethlehem is called the city of David, because Jerusalem became a place of power and prestige, but David's city really is Bethlehem. Is a, a humble place. It's where a shepherd boy gets chosen to be king. You might forget about that in Jerusalem. You might think that the powerful of the ones who deserve power. Well, the descendants of David, even David himself towards the end of his life, proved to be a pretty disappointing bunch, also. And as you read through the Old Testament, you just see what a tragedy they are. Solomon first. Oh, David as I said, but Solomon, who is not example of Solomon, was a great king, but he amassed great wealth. He took many wives. And he built stables for horses. So he must have got the law of God, even though he wanted to provide it out with his own hand. But he so as above the law, made arrogant and proud. So the kings were seduced by the trappings of the power. They often forgot, abandoned, and betrayed the Lord, and raised themselves up as tyrants over their subjects, rather than being brothers, or the brothers and sisters of Israel. So here, let's get back to the Luke's account. Here you've got shepherds in that region, in Bethlehem. And it must have been pretty tough to be a shepherd. <coughs> um, they were amongst the unskilled laborers of their day. Pretty hard in our, in our social, social and economic world, isn't it, to be an unskilled laborer? You're at the bottom of the heap. Certainly, in the time of uh, uh, that Jesus was around, it's true that the Roman Empire was raising living standards in many ways. And there was a growing, what we call now a middle class. Uh, and uh, there was a kind of a, a growth in skills. There was more education. If you were a farmer, um, it was much more lucrative to grow grain than to teach sheep. Is that still the one? Yeah. And that was just hard work to to keep sheep. And so if you were a, if you kept sheep as a farmer, you were basically at the bottom of the pile of farmers too. You had pretty bad land, couldn't grow grain on it. And uh, and so if you were a shepherd, you might be hired by a farmer. You might be a farmer with unable to even hire a shepherd. You were really the bottom of the social pile. You, know, you weren't really an outcast, you just kind of had no status. You were kind of like just a nobody, nobody knows you. You might be what some people call deplorable. And I reckon you probably resent anybody who has education or power. And you probably think of them as, you know, not really great. Right. Be fairly independently minded. The Roman Empire had created a whole bureaucratic class of people, public servants. That's what the tax collectors were. And they did really well out of the Roman tyranny over Israel. And shepherds then were on the downside of an upwardly mobile society. They were down, everybody else was heading up. and they probably felt they had every reason to be cynical about the ruling class who are prospering as they struggled. It's a given, isn't it? That the powerless always do well at this. the powerful always do well at the expense of the powerless. That's the world we live in, isn't it? And the more power, the power shepherds, they were um, there in the field, secret feeding the sheep for, but they were guarding them against maybe against uh, wolves or lions, or maybe against rustlers. All these people coming to Bethlehem, uh, you know, food's got to be provided for them, and unscrupulous people finding a sheep somewhere? Oh, well, even if it's clearly in somebody's sheepfold. <laughs> but that night, there they were guarding the sheep, and the night exploded with brightness as the, one of God's angels appeared to them. My guess it uh, took quite time to rattle these men, but they were filled with fear. They dealt with lions. do that, dealt with, Roberts, they could do that. But this, heck! Let's do something else. They were right outside their comfort zone. And this painter had a message for these men, and what a message. It was news, he said, of great joy for the whole nation and for the whole world. <laughs> for some reason, these shepherds on the backside of humanity mm-hmm. were the first to hear about the birth of a child down in Bethlehem, Davidstown who, can you believe what the angels say, is a saviour who is Christ the Lord and then as soon as he's finished it's quite like there's been a whole chorus just waiting to burst out, I love the prayers today There's anybody you know wants to for prayer, and suddenly there's a whole host of children's voices praying to the Lord. Or here there's a whole host of angelic voices calling out, "Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth with men with whom He's pleased." And then, just as suddenly as the brightness had appeared, it disappeared. And there's the shepherds. Uh, 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 What are you doing with that? Well, the event was so commanding that the shepherds could not simply leave it at that. They decided to go into Bethlehem straight away, leaving the sheep there, uh, to see this thing that had happened. As quick as they can, they went found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a feed trough in a shed at the back of the inn. And they told the parents here what they've told by the angels. And as, as they looked on the mother and the child, that message suddenly made sense to them. It all rang true. And so they went out of there praising and glorifying God for all they'd seen there in that shed, just as it had been told them. So, what actually happened there? Like, it's quite something, isn't it, to this dramatic event happened with angels? But something happened in the shed that actually fills them with joy. Something happened in the shed, it's not the angels that fills you know, them, the angels filled them in fear. But when they go into the shed, they go out from there filled with joy. What is it that they see there? They see a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth lying in a feed trough. But with that baby there's a whole word attached. Well, they haven't seen anything very impressive. Nothing that spoke of the imperial majesty. Nothing regal there in the shed, was there? They saw a baby that must have looked a bit like them when they were born. They saw someone who was like a brother to them. And they didn't see anything powerful and mighty, they saw something weak and helpless. They saw a baby who was going to, who really have to depend on God to survive. They saw a true king. That's what they saw—a true king, at last, a true king, humble. What they saw, this young couple, not even married yet. Newborn baby, innocent child, they saw the focal point of God's ruling power and action in the whole world. Here in the city of David, here at last, was David's true descendant. Meek and lowly of heart, born in humble circumstances with none of the trappings of power. I guess all of us, in one way, are sick of the way people run the world. I think all of us are. Huh? And I reckon if we got the chance, there'd be people who are sick of the way we run the world too. You can try and drain the swamp, but whoever you fill it with is going to do the same. We need someone, don't we, who can transform us? Take away our love of power, our love of control, our love of prestige, our love of ourselves and make us people who love others. And there, in that manger, in that feed trough, there, that little child was the one. He was going to grow up and become a man who would give himself in service. He was baptized, received the Holy, the Holy Spirit, rushed upon him. He was baptized and he began his work of being the king. He's king there in the, but it takes some years and then he begins the work of being the king. One of the first things he does is he preaches a sermon. That's right, so people say, I love the teaching of Jesus. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's pretty darn confronting. Heck, you know, I love the teaching of Jesus, I just don't like to do it. <laughs> it's kind of like how it feels. Um, but there's, uh, there's Jesus, and what he's doing is he's, he's teaching the law. It's kind of like the law's been written on his heart and now he teaches it. And he goes around doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil or who are sick. He meets people who are broken in life and restores it and uses them. He meets people who are hard and tough and the crust breaks, like those shepherds' crust broke that night. And how does he do that? He says to a hard-bitten tax collector, I'm going to come to your place for dinner. And and that tax collector's ideas, he he suddenly realizes he must block me. And he must, if he was there, he must surely not be counting my sins against me, which are many, And so when he has the fix, he says, Lord, if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to pay it all back. And with what's left, half of what I've got left, I'm going to give it away to the poor. That's a transformed life, isn't it? And then finally, he gets to the great culmination of his service, where he's going to drain the swamp. He really is going to drain the swamp of our hearts, the whole, the swamp of the whole Humanity with our love for power. He goes and he submits himself to death, even death on the cross. There's a sign hanging over him when he's crucified. King of the Jews, mocking. But he actually is right there, we see the king. Right there, we see the king. He's not exercising power for his sake, but browsing. as he's crucified with that sign hanging over him, the first thing he says on the cross is this. He says this, Father, forgive them. They don't have a proof. They don't know what real humanity is. They don't know. They don't know. Forgive them. This is that to us, each one of us, he says that. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know how to get out of whatever we're in. We're trapped we've got the crust. I'm just like that lady, you know. Trapped. Except that Jesus has a word of forgiveness that breaks it all open. Jesus came to identify with the poor, the weak and lowly, the meek and lowly, but all he needs finally are the proud and the arrogant and the cruel. Us. Just this morning, my wife's sick. She'd been coughing up her lung most of the night and kept me awake since four o'clock. So I said uh, Why haven't you been to the doctor yet? Just what she needed to hear, don't you think? There's in that, really, isn't there? They're very helpful, God. So I left home with my wife in tears. You know, well, I'm a forgiven person, thanks be to God. But there you go, you know, that's cross, And Jesus comes, and just when you think, like, at that cross, and they're mocking him, they're spitting at him, they're taunting him, just when you kind of think it would be fine to crack, he says, Father, forgive them. What kind of thing is that? Among all the great people in history, there is none like Jesus. He, he alone can actually rule the world. He alone can be trusted with all authority. Because he alone will not be corrupted by that authority, by the power. That comes he won't be crucified because he saw every power that came to him as the power of service, yeah, mm-hmm. and so he was humbled to the very end. That God, his Father, could open up through him a new future for the world where he would reign forever. Most of the pain we have in our lives comes from the, our own arrogant attempt to rule our world. We want to be king of the world, but at least our little bit of it. We become heavy-handed when we should be kind. We become unjust when we should be just. We become cruel when we should be forgiving. We become unfaithful when we should bear things for the sake of love. Jesus Christ, God's true King, has a word for us. All this makes us weary and (laughs) and elated. What did the shepherds do? The angels told them something and they came to Jesus. I've told you something today. And I want to say, this is what Jesus says to you. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, weary and heavy laden. You will find rest for your souls. Come to me. Come to me, says Jesus, you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Come to me, you'll find rest for your souls. Up on the high cross, He took all that, all our sin, all our weary, heavy laden burden of our hard crust, and He opened up for us a future that is free and glorious. Today, if you never have before, you could pray something like this. King Jesus, I've made a mess of life, my life and the lives of others. I've tried to do things all my way. I thank you for your humble doing of things God's way, Lord Jesus. I thank you for going even to death on the cross. You alone can take my unruly life and give it order. And so, I come to you and ask you, come to me, come rule in my life and come rule in me. Forgive me my sins and make me new. Amen. I want to read you a poem in closing. poem was written by a, a Dutchman who survived the Second World War as a resistor to Hitler, and then went and studied theology in America. His name is Cor um, Barndrecht. The poem is called The Birth. At zero hour, God came, a baby on the bloodthirsty earth, with vernix on it. On its skin, like little sheep in a sundown pasture, and wrinkles on its face, like little year of untimeliness, like summer wood in a balsam turf, and 20 billion invisible nerve cells with a live reminiscence of heaven, and more knowledge than 100 volumes of Encyclopedia Britannica in the DNA molecules of one cell stream. When Shepherds knocked noisily at the door of the sepulchral-sounding cave, his arms and legs swung out with a jerk, and he cried an earthly roar of flesh and blood, a simple startle reaction. God spoke once more, creative word, a benediction for creation. At thirty-three, expansive wide, his hands spread all around arms thrown out wide to embrace the universe, purple of passion in a sunset sky, day without end. The word has reached the beach, the field, the town, bloodthirsty earth of men to retrieve, cheap sinners and braves. Break out of your crust, it's time to...